Probably no surprise uh, for those of you who know me well. Uh, one of my favourite films uh, are the Star Wars films, okay? And uh, probably my favourite Star Wars film is this one, uh, Rogue One. You know, if you're a purist, maybe you're going to dispute with me. You know, it's a, it's a side story. It's not the main thing, but, but I, I love uh, Rogue One. And I want to see just how educated you are as a congregation this morning. So I'm going to test you. Uh, so I'm going to give you the first line of a quote, and then you need to give me the response, okay? And if you don't, just get up and leave. It's, it's, there's, there's, okay? You're asking us to invade an imperial base armed with nothing but hope. <sighs> Rebellions are built on hope. Don't you know that? Okay, okay, maybe my hopes were a little bit high this morning, can I say? Let me, let me say something a little bit simpler. Episode 4, you know, the first Star Wars, it's confusing, isn't it? For those who don't know Star Wars, they started with Episode 4. Uh, do you know what its real title is? Do you know what it's called? It's called A New Hope. Okay, hope, we love stories about Hope. Alexander Pope actually said, hope springs eternal in the human breast. We are intrinsically hopeful and the psychologists among us will know that we actually need hope to survive. They've actually done tests on rats and put them into a situation where regardless of what they did, uh, bad things always happened. It was kind of a damned if you did, damned if you didn't kind of situation. And you know what the rats do after a while? They just curl up and die. We need hope. We absolutely are built around hope. And what we are celebrating this morning with the Easter story is the single greatest story about hope. It starts off pretty bleak. Good Friday. Jesus betrayed, abandoned, denied, mocked, spat upon, beaten, falsely accused, unjustly condemned, crucified. But if you know anything, and you obviously do because you turned up today, Sunday is coming. Friday is just the beginning of the story. It was never going to be its end. Sunday comes with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. Sunday comes bringing life and hope. Because this is not just a story. It provides a foundation for a hope that nothing can challenge. Then and now. Everyone loves a rebel and rebellions are built on hope. So maybe this has got something to teach us this morning. So I've got three points for us so you can sort of see where we're going. First, hopeless defeat. Second, glorious triumph. And third, transformed life. So hopeless defeat. We know Good Friday, don't we? It's a story that ends at a tomb. How many people have actually been asked, why do you call Good Friday Good Friday? Like, what's there to celebrate? Well, there's so much to celebrate, but you've got to see it from a certain perspective, don't you? It is a grim day. 
Jesus is taken from the cross. The sun is almost setting. The, the uh, Sabbath is about to start. So he, he gets quickly buried and put into the tomb. There's no time for the normal niceties, the rituals that go on, the preparation of the body. They put him in the tomb. They seal the tomb. The governor sets a guard on the tomb so that no one might come and steal the body. And we find in verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 24, on the Sunday morning, the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? Maybe you've buried someone that you love. But here you are going to the tomb. We look at this and we, we think, ah, oh, look, okay, we know Jesus is alive. So what's the problem? But they didn't. They went looking for a body. They went looking for a corpse. They had seen what had unfolded on the Thursday and the Friday with someone they esteemed more than all others, someone they loved, their teacher, their friend, the one who they had hoped would bring the hopes of God's people to their fruition, they had seen him brutally murdered. They would have gone ashes and sackcloth covering their souls, depressed, Mourning, exhausted, hopeless. They came there to honour a dear friend. They came to honour their teacher. You might actually ask, if you notice, where are the men? Jesus had 12 disciples. Judas is betrayed and gone off. And at this point, he has killed himself. But where are the other 11? Well, John actually tells us that they're in hiding because they're afraid that the authorities are going to finish what they started with Jesus. They're in hiding because of fear of the authorities. They're afraid that they will be rounded up and receive the same fate as Jesus. You know, what better way to nip this Jesus movement in the bud but to wrap up the main player, Jesus himself, and then all his key followers. They're hiding. And when the women, when they come back and they speak to the men about what they've seen, we read this. The women came back from the tomb and they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. And how were their, their news received? They did not believe the women. Because their words seem to them like nonsense. Their words seem to them like nonsense. Hope had been smashed to the ground. The women are confronted by angels. They're still confused. They're, they're, they're excited. They go and tell the eleven. Doesn't even compute. Doesn't even sink in. And even after Peter goes to the tomb, they are still sceptical. So on the road to Emmaus, Emmaus, where the two disciples, they're conversing with Jesus, even though they don't actually know who it is they're talking to. 
we read this. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped and no longer. They're still sceptical. They had dared to dream big, but now their hopes lie shattered on the ground. They had had a hope for the future. Oop, jumping over a bit. They had hoped that Jesus was going to bring it in. And he had embodied it. If you know the Jesus story, he had represented to them everything that God had promised. He was a prophet they called powerful in word and deed. He was the one they had hoped would bring in God's kingdom to end suffering, evil, oppression and death. To set things right, to save God's people. They had dared to hope, but it had fallen to the ground. I don't know about you. Do you describe yourself as a hopeful person? Are you hopeful? Or are you the kind of person who who always kind of looks at the other side of things? You know, you're not a person who says probably, you say probably not. You know the glass? Is it half full or half empty? Well... It's probably half empty and there's probably a crack in it anyway. It's all going to leak out, you know. We actually, I think as a society, we don't do hope very well. This is, uh, this is a lady by the name of Alana Mathis who wrote uh, in the New York Times book review a while ago, which subjects are underrepresented in contemporary fiction? I imagine you've all read this. Uh, you know, with your spare time, what more exciting. Um, but she's looking at all the books that are being written. Well, what themes are being picked up? Because these are the stories that our culture tells. And she says this, writers are a bit flummoxed by joy. With few exceptions, we have decided that despair, alienation, bleakness are the most meaningful and interesting descriptors of the human condition. Writers are suspicious of the joy and the fullness of life. We're suspicious of hope. But rebellions are built on hope, aren't they? But we look at this and maybe we look at ourselves and we're saying, well, actually, you know, COVID and what's happening in the world, politics and all that kind of stuff, actually... We're pretty sure the empire's got this one. (laughs) We're offered hope, but we don't often buy it. We were promised that science would actually solve everything. If you're old enough, you've, you've heard that one probably. That we would find the solution to all our problems. But I've been alive for long enough to see that every problem that science solves, we create more. We're offered, you know, if we just get our education right, then we will enter into this utopia. I've been around for long enough to see that that doesn't quite uh, deliver in the same way. We don't buy it. And so we have scaled hope back. Have you done that? Is your hope limited to the small things, the small pleasures, the small ideas 
that holiday that you're going to take. You know, that little time with the family. Maybe the years of retirement. It's interesting when my parents retired, the financial planner told them, whatever your holidays you're going to take, take in the first 10 years. Because after that time, you need to stay close to the hospitals. Okay? Maybe some of you know this. And, uh, you know, don't think I've got to spread my money out over 40 years or something like that because all the holidays you take, they're in the first 10 years. Sorry if you've just retired, okay? (laughs) Maybe sorry if you're 10 years into your retirement. (laughs) You can work that out. But we settle on scaling down our hopes. And often we might actually look, maybe we're at the younger end of the spectrum, and we think... Actually, if I was rich, if I was beautiful, if I looked like this, if I had the right education, the right connections, maybe hopes for those people, but not for me. And so we have a younger generation that is just devastated with issues of anxiety and mental illness. And I think it's because, one of the reasons because, we have given up on hope. The hopes we have are uncertain at best. We've embraced, quite cynically, a view that one of my favourite websites, despair.com, wishes. When you wish upon a falling star, your dreams can come true. Unless it's really a meteor hurtling to the earth, which will destroy all life. Then you're pretty much hosed no matter what you wish for. Unless, of course, it's death by meteor. Bleak, isn't it? Go look at despair.com. You'll find lots of these. Okay? Another one of my favourites. It's always the darkest just before it goes pitch black. Uh, <laughs> But we resonate with it, don't we? You walk in and see those motivational pictures on people's walls and you kind of go, oh, you know. You see something like that, that's something that really engages you, doesn't it? We are not comfortable with hope and with joy and that sort of stuff because we're more more lined up with the small dreams, the small hopes. And death conquers them all, doesn't he? Carl Jung, the psychologist, said this, Death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. There is no sense pretending otherwise. It is brutal not only as a physical event, but far more as so psychically. A human being is torn away from us, and what remains is the icy stillness of death. There no longer exists any hope of relationship For all the bridges have been smashed at one blow. Carl Jung is no Christian, can I say? But that's Good Friday. That's what the disciples had embraced. We had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. We had hoped. And when the women come and say, the tomb's empty and we saw angels, it's ridiculous. They had set their hopes, recalibrated it back down. What are you hopeful? Do you hope for the best that this broken world can give you? 
Do you just live for today because that's what you can hope for? This is your only wealth. This is your only health. This is the only pleasure and joy you're going to have. So you may as well seize the day now, make the most of it, because you're not going to get anything else. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. Do we settle for small hopes? Can there be something more? Well, no surprises. On a day like today, I'm going to say yes. Because death, no matter how brutal it is, does not have the final word. Brings us to point number two, glorious triumph. What do the women find when they go to the tomb? They go in and they're just baffled. The tombs open. It is empty. And they meet two men, shining clothes. In their fright, the women bowed with their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Note the gentle rebuke. The angels are saying to them, you should have expected this. You shouldn't have come here with your spices to prepare a corpse for burial. You should have come looking for the Lord Jesus because he told you so. You should have expected it. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered to the hands of sinners, be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Can it be true? See, it's interesting when you read the Gospels, when the Gospel writers record names for us, it's Mary, it's Joanna, it's Mary Magdalene. We have other people along the way that it gets named. Why does he name them? If you think about it, when I tell a story, and, and if you know the people, I might say, oh, you know, I was talking to Simon. Because you go, ah, Simon. Okay. But if you don't know Simon, if I say Simon, you go... Who's Simon? So I might say, I was talking to a mate. Okay? Why does Luke tell us the names? Because they were around when Luke wrote these. And so you could rock up and you could say to Mary, what was it like? Joanna, what did you see? That's why we have these names. Did it happen? Is it just too good to be true? I read during the week, you might remember the Watergate scandal. Does anyone remember the Watergate scandal? You know, Richard Nixon and all that kind of stuff. And uh, Richard Nixon, um, if you don't know, uh, basically did some naughty things and got busted. Okay. And uh, the Watergate scandal was the thing that brought down his presidency, among other things. And Charles Colson was one of his key advisors who was converted in prison after, I think it was in prison, after the Watergate scandal broke, like when he was convicted. And he said the Watergate scandal convinced him that the resurrection was true. You go, well, what's the connection? Well, he said in that situation, you had 12 of the world's most powerful people who were unable to keep a straight story uh, for 30 days. And here you have 12 fishermen and a whole lot of others who are able to keep the same story straight until their deaths. And they died for it. Here they are. One of them, or two of them, died of old age. 
John and Simon, James, son of Zebedee, beheaded, Peter, crucified, Andrew, crucified, Matthew, stabbed, Nathaniel, flayed, that's skinned alive, uh, Thomas, stabbed, Matthias, stoned, then beheaded, just to make sure, Thaddeus, crucified, James, stoned, then clubbed, Philip, crucified. Would you die for a lie? These men were transformed. These men were transformed from hiding in rooms to standing up before chief priests and then going out to the world to announce that hope had been born because Jesus had been risen from the dead. These men were transformed. But the angels, they take us back to the words of Jesus. That before he died, he told you this was going to happen. Remember how he told you, while he was with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Because this was God's plan. This is the way that death was going to be defeated. This was the way that sin was going to be paid for. One simple way to think about what Jesus does in salvation Sin is when we put ourselves in God's place. What happens in salvation is where God puts himself in our place. Christ went to the cross, bore our penalty for our sin. He defanged death. He drew its venom. He bore its penalty. He took its judgment. Sin, us in God's place. Salvation, God in our place. He stood in our place, crowned not with gold, but with thorns. Announced to the crowds with mockery, not adulation. He was brought to despair. My God my God, why have you forsaken me? So that hope might be restored to us. He took what we deserved so that we could have what he alone deserved and that when he rose from the grave, we could have this guaranteed hope offered freely to us and received by faith. And that hope, it transforms, brings us to our last point. That hope is not just a, I get to go to heaven when I die. True. You get to live eternally with God. But that hope transforms the here and the now. Because rebellions are built on hope. Because Jesus' resurrection is not an isolated event. The Bible speaks of it as the first fruits of what is yet to come. Now, the disciples, they saw the destination, but they didn't see the journey that was necessary. They saw the future where God would wipe every tear from their eyes, where there would be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things wiped away. God made all things new. But they just didn't conceive that he would do that through the cross and through the resurrection of his son.
The kingdom has been brought in. The kingdom has broken in through the resurrection of Christ. Through the cross, not by an army. In weakness, not in strength. Death defeated and eternity open. And it transforms us in the here and the now. One of the things I've noticed over the last year and a bit that COVID has been with us is just how afraid people are. Because all of a sudden, the smallness of our hope is exposed. What if I catch that virus? What if it devastates our economy? What will it do to our way of life? Serious things. Don't let me, don't hear me making light of them. But what I see is a society that pins its hopes entirely on the here and the now. Small hopes, fragile hopes. But what we have in Christ is a hope that death cannot conquer is a hope that nothing can take from us. And it changes us. It lets us live as rebels with a big hope. With a hope that lets us transcend the littleness of our world. A life that we can pour out for others because this is not the best that we have. A life that we can live for others and for God's glory. Because we will spend eternity with him. A life that the Lord Jesus died to make possible. A life that he called life to the full. I can remember growing up, uh, my mother sometimes was a little bit scornful of Christians. Uh, And she used to say this phrase, maybe you've heard it. So heavenly minded of no earthly use at all. You've heard that? Okay, C.S. Lewis, uh, the great Christian author of the Narnia books and lots of other things as well, he said this, if you read history, you will find the Christians who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Why? Because God makes it possible for us to live as rebels. Rebels with a big hope that is guaranteed us in Christ, that he will bring in the new creation and we get to live as Christ lived in the here and the now. We get to sacrifice. We get to serve. Not just chasing these little things, but chasing the hope that God makes possible in Christ. So as we think about Easter, let's think more than chocolate, more than even just when I die, I get to go to heaven. Think about the hope that is made possible through the death and resurrection of Christ. The hope of a new life, the hope of a new creation and how that hope transforms us now. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that death was not the last word. By rights, you could have left us, left us with the consequences of our choices, left us in our rejection and rebellion. Father, we ask that you amaze us, that you restore us, that you show us once again the hope that you made possible through Christ's death and resurrection. The fact that now as we are accepted, forgiven, restored in him, we can live as your people, people of your kingdom, embodying that hope and holding out that hope to the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.